0: Uh, Let's talk together about this story. Uh, I don't know if your Bible has it, but some of the old Bibles used to have a section at the front for family records. Does your Bible have one of those? I don't think many of them do anymore. But it used to say, you know, births, a few pages, marriages, a few pages, deaths, a few pages. You could list out all your family business, your family tree, right there in the front of the Bible. Uh, Well, it kind of seems like, uh, as you read the passage that we read tonight... Uh, Even in spite of all the drama that's contained in it, it seems almost like you're just reading Jacob's family record in front of his Bible, right? It just seems like a bunch of historical things that really have very little, uh, honestly, very little relevance to our lives now. Is that the case, though? I I think you know what my answer is going to be. If you've been around me long enough, you know. I I think that every part of the Bible could be preached Because that was why it was written. Uh, Every part of the Bible has something to teach us. But I I agree with you. I admit it's not necessarily apparent here. Other than the fact that obviously the 12 tribes of Israel are finding their names in this story. And it's showing you why they each got named what they got named. Which has great historical significance. But I want to focus tonight on two things. Uh, Well, there's three points, but there's two things, okay? Uh, The two things are this. God... And his work in people's lives. All right? Those are the two things. God and his work in people's lives, even through the seemingly mundane aspects of everyday life, the, the marrying, the having babies, the raising babies, the naming of babies, all those things. God is at work. Uh, if you'll look at your uh, bulletin, there are three particular situations or three sets of people that God is at work with in this story. Uh, first, you get God and Leah which we want to talk about. Then you get what I'm going to call God and Schemes. But really, you could also name it God and Rachel and Leah and Zilpah and Bilha. The family is expanding in a kind of, kind of sordid way, not a very good way there. And then at the end, you got God and Rachel. God and Leah, God and Schemes, or all those other people, and then God and Rachel. And I want us to pay close attention at the way God is working, what he's doing in their hearts, and why through this whole really sad, almost again, soap opera-like tale of Jacob's family. Y'all ready for that? Let's talk about it. First of all, God and Leah. Uh, Leah's story is a very sad story if you think about it. And who caused the sadness of Leah's life? Her dad, if you want to pin the blame on somebody, you got to pin it on Laban. Why would you pin it on Laban? He used her to trick Jacob. And probably he was trying to trick Jacob so that he could have Jacob's free labor and and the benefit of Jacob's wealth for a longer time. And so he duped Jacob into serving him not just for 7 years for free, but for 14 years for free so that Jacob could finally have the wife that he actually asked for in the beginning, which was Rachel, the younger daughter. Uh, Leah didn't ask for this. Not, not, there's nothing, in, at least, that we see in the Bible that says she asked for it. She's almost sort of thrust into it by her dad against her will. Terrible thing. And not to mention that, on top of it all, once she is married to Jacob, Jacob doesn't favor her. He continues to favor Rachel, the, the original woman that he went after and asked Laban's blessing for. In fact, it says in verse 31, Leah was what? Hated, Hated which is a very strong word. Um, you could say it's just the absence of love, but I think hate is something more than just merely the absence of love. There's like a positive dislike. Uh, who is it that dislikes Leah? Husband? Even more so, Rachel. Right? We've already saw that. Uh, what a cruel thing that Laban did to put his two daughters together with the same man as rival wives. It's terrible. And Rachel gets the short end of the stick. She's hated all throughout her life. But I want you to notice something. This is important. Because when we go through very difficult things in our lives... Almost always, the first thing we think is, I'm alone. Nobody cares. Nobody has suffered like I suffer. Nobody is going through this particular thing that I'm going through. Nobody sees me. Nobody pays attention. Yet notice, what does God do? What is it very clear God does to Leah the whole time? Even though Laban doesn't see her or care, Jacob. Really didn't want her to begin with, and Rachel certainly doesn't care. What does God do? Well, the first thing, he sees her. He sees her. Do, you, do you notice that? The Lord saw Leah. Now, already in Genesis, we've seen this idea of the God who sees. In fact, uh, it's one of God's names in the Bible Jehovah Rao, which means what? God sees. Uh, In what story did we see that already? This is important. Bible trivia time. Ishmael and Hagar, absolutely. Yeah, it was in Ishmael and Hagar. It was Hagar, who was also a wife kind of unloved, uh, a wife that was just thrown on Abraham by Sarah. But then Sarah became angry with Hagar because she conceived and bore a son, very much like this story. And Sarah kicks Hagar out into the wilderness while she was still uh, pregnant with Ishmael. And it says God saw her and met her by an oasis in the desert. And from that day on, Hagar knew God as Jehovah who sees, the God who sees me, the God who pays attention to what I'm going through, even when it's like nobody else is paying attention. That same thing is being used right here about Leah. It's amazing how God has this, there's a characteristic of God in this, something that's starting to develop as a pattern and will continue to develop as a pattern throughout the Bible. God sees people that nobody else sees. God cares about people about whom no one else seems to care. He acts on behalf of people that nobody else wants to help. Now, let's, let's think about the rest of the Bible. When are some other occasions after this where we see God seeing and helping people who don't have anybody else? Joseph. In, where is he at? Jail, right? He's in jail. Nobody cares. Even the people that he helped. He was like, please tell the king, you know, tell Pharaoh that I'm still here and I want to get out. And they forget him. But God sees him. What else? Plenty of stories. The people of Nineveh. Nineveh, That's right. Yeah, they were evil people. And um, nobody else was paying attention to Nineveh in Israel. No one was thinking, hey, I got a good idea. Let's go preach to them. Jonah didn't like it when God told him to go. But yet God saw them. God cared about them. And God wanted in some measure to spare the city. It even says in that story, God saw the cattle. Did you know that at the very end it says that God uh, cared about Nineveh because there were so many people there and so many cattle, <laughs> and that just shows you again just how consistently attentive God is to His creation. That even the animals are a special um, are a special object of His of His care, even when other people ignore them. Amazing. What else? He did, yeah. The lepers, the, the uh, prostitutes who came to Jesus, Jesus saw them. The woman caught in adultery, Jesus saw her. The woman at the well, Jesus saw her. In fact, that's a huge pattern in the Gospels. Jesus sees, he has compassion, and he goes into action. That's kind of what Paul Miller taught us to notice from the Gospels in his book, Love Walked Among Us. That over and over again, Jesus sees somebody, he's filled with compassion as he looks at him, and he goes into action. Well, all that's going on there is Jesus is displaying the character of God, because, of course, he is God. He's displaying that character in human flesh. Well, all, all these years before Jesus would ever be born, there is Leah. The forgotten one, uh, the one that, you know, you would imagine... Uh, would not even make her way into the history of the Bible. And yet she's here because God saw her, and specifically he saw what was wrong with her. He saw what she was so troubled about. He saw specifically that she was hated, and that her womb uh, had not yet borne children, and so it says he opened her womb. But Rachel's was barren. Uh, Jesus said, think about this, Jesus says, if you exalt yourself, you will be, say it out loud, humbled, yes, thank you, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted, that's how this works, right, this is something that you see God doing all the time, he lifts up the downcast, and he brings down those who are proud in heart, And so throughout this story, actually, you see that as all these children are being born, it seems like a random family record that makes no sense. But really what you're seeing is God lifting up a downcast woman and teaching her a lesson of grace and bringing down a proud woman and also to teach her a message of grace. So that at the end, you have two women who greatly understand God's grace, granted through hard circumstances. One, the hard circumstances came first, and then God lifted her up. Leah the other lifted herself up and God brought her down so that she would be able to tell what the grace of God meant Uh, either way what this tells you is you got to go down to know God's grace (laughs) you got to go down to know God's grace in order to be exalted by God you must be humbled in yourself and so Leah was hated and God saw her Opened her womb and chose to leave Rachel's womb barren for a good while. In fact, Leah has numerous sons. How many sons does she have in verses 32 to 35? In those verses, four. She has four sons, and all of them are given names, very special names. And each of the names represents something that she's learning about God as it happens. And also, uh, the names represent something that's in her heart that she's processing. Uh, Did you notice how each name has something to do with what she wants the most from God? First, First son, Reuben, what does his name mean? See, right? God sees me. God is the God who sees. See, there's a son. God gave me a son. But then she adds, Now my husband will love me. Did the birth of Reuben help Jacob love Leah? Doesn't seem like it, because then she bears another son. And what's his name? Simeon, which means what? Heard. God heard me. Well, nothing's mentioned there about jacob except for the fact that god heard now that i'm hated so nothing has changed i'm still hated he saw that i was hated and now he heard that i'm hated i'm still hated and then she had a third son named levi and she says oh this time my husband will be attached to me and levi means attached or brought together my husband will be attached to me but it doesn't seem like that happened either and so finally after the fourth son was born what is leah freed up to say in her heart you know, she's saying, and listen, this doesn't excuse Jacob's behavior at all for the way that he mistreats Leah. But Leah is learning a lesson on her own with God, which is this. You can't depend on your husband's affection because your husband's, a, you know, he's a bonehead. And he's not, he's not thinking straight at this point. So what you need to do is learn how to get your satisfaction and joy in life from God, not man. And finally, she's able to say, look, now I'm not asking for my husband's affection anymore. I just want to praise the Lord. Do you notice these little subtle things as the family starts to develop? God is seeing a woman who is downcast and slowly lifting her up to a place where she's not so obsessed over what she doesn't have from her husband. Instead, she is filled with joy at what she does have in her God. A God who sees her, a God who hears her, and a God who commits to her. God saw her, verse 31. God heard her, verse 33. And unlike Jacob, God attached Himself to her to help her in the midst of her trouble. And finally, because of that, she is able to see her her maker, her God in heaven, as her husband, even though her husband on earth wasn't the best at this point. Now he gets better, I think. But at this point, not so much. Do you see it? The Lord knows how to work through all different circumstances in a person's life. He knows what each person needs in every circumstance that they find themselves in, whether they're high or whether they're low. And always, in just about any circumstance, what God is trying to do is He's trying to teach us to put our joy in Him rather than in created things. He's teaching us that through good things that happen, and He's teaching us that through very difficult, hard things that happen. Same lesson. Put your joy in God. When good things happen, God is saying, Look, look how much I love you. Look at how much, how generous I am to you. Now look beyond the gift to the giver and give me praise. She's learning to do that as she has these sons. But in bad times, God is trying to do the same exact thing. He wants Leah to recognize, I am downcast, I am despised by men, but yet I am seen, I am heard, and I am committed to by God in heaven. Wow. A message of grace, a lesson of grace being taught to a woman who certainly had to feel like she was alone. I wonder, have you ever felt alone? I have before. It's a very human feeling. Um, Sometimes, or oftentimes, we feel alone when we're going through difficult things, when we're going through losses. Well, there's no better place to go than here to encourage your heart that God sees what you're going through He hears it he hears your cries he hears your prayers and yes God is committed to your good that is your good defined by him not necessarily by you and defined by him means that you would learn to take your joy in God Judah the Lord's name be praised in fact the name Judah would eventually become the name for the whole nation of Israel because Judah would be the only tribe left the tribe of Judah. That's actually where the, the, the word Jew comes from, from the, the tribe of Judah. So that Paul is able to say in, in Romans chapter 2, at the end of it, a Jew is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but a Jew, a true Jew, is one who is a Jew inwardly. Whose praise does not come from men, but from God. And he's playing on that word Judah there. To say a true Christian, a true believer, a true Jewish person, someone who truly believes in the one true God has learned to not get his praise from men or not to praise men, but to praise God. Like Leah, our great mother of the faith here, learning this lesson. Sound good? God and Leah. God takes those who are downcast and he lifts them up. Well, let's look secondly at God and schemes. And really, you could title this God and Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah, because the family tree is getting quite complicated. You know, Jacob's getting busy in the front of his Bible, writing down all the names that are being added, because here, wives are coming and going, as both women try to scheme their way to more children. Uh, For Rachel, she is very disappointed that she is barren, and so you can kind of see that there in verse 2. Uh, how does she come uh, to uh, Jacob in her trouble what what attitude or what heart does she have there in verse one of chapter thirty? <laughs> kind of kind of yeah, I mean, super demanding, you know, and, and of course demanding about something that Jacob really has nothing to do with, and probably I mean obviously Rachel knows that, but Rachel is very. Upset, You can kind of hear within that one statement, give me children or I shall die, you can hear her desperation. And so even though Rachel's very proud and sort of self-exalting, yet underneath the surface, she's not a whole lot different from her sister. Uh, her sister Leah uh, was frustrated because uh, she didn't have the love of her husband. And so it was almost like she was saying, love me or I'll die. Well, Rachel is saying kind of the same thing, just about a different topic. Give me children or I die. She had her husband's love, but she didn't have her children. Leah had children, but she didn't have her husband's love. And yet God is going to come to Rachel too, and God is going to work even in spite of Rachel's scheming. Uh, Jacob gets mad at Rachel, uh, and so Rachel does what we've seen in this book before. Uh, She gives to Jacob another wife in the form of her servant, Bilhah. And from Bilhah, how many children are born? Two. Two children. What are their names? As we trace out the family tree, what are the names of the children? Dan and Naphtali. Dan and Naphtali. Now, I want you to notice real quick, because it's Rachel naming these babies. Um, Not Bilhah. Bilhah is just a servant. Even though she's become a wife to Jacob, her status is still lower in the household. Why does Rachel name these children Dan and Naphtali? How would you describe her attitude based on the meaning of those names? Dan, after all, means judgment. Naphtali means wrestling. Who is she judging? Who is she wrestling? Becomes very clear, right, in verse 8. With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled, who? With my sister, and I have prevailed. God is beginning to bless Rachel. These two children will become children that are counted as hers. And yet, Rachel's heart is still quite proud and arrogant. Her only concern, really, is to best her sister. It would be kind of sad to know that you were named after something like that, right? If you were Dan or Naphtali, can you imagine? How did you get your name? My mom hated her sister. So she named me after that hatred it's kind of depressing right and yet this is where Rachel is at this point she's she's just scheming to try to get her way and when she gets her way all she can think about is hey look I, I did it I bested Leah I showed that I'm better than her well then that provokes Leah into action and Leah does the same thing she takes her servant Zilpah and gives her to Jacob as a wife and how many children are born Two to match the two of Bilha, and what are they named after? Gad and Asher. Yes, and these two n- names are, are what? What kind of attitude do they reflect? I mean, think. About, I mean, do you do all have the? Maybe if you don't have your Bible, you don't have the footnotes, but. Good fortune and happy These are good names. These are joyful names. So it's like, you know, uh, Rachel names her servants' kids judgment and wrestling. And then Leah says, "Good fortune and happiness." You kind of see the difference between the two women at this point, right? And yet, somehow some way, even in the scheming, what is God doing? He's blessing the family. He's giving. Children to the family. These four boys, Dan and Naphtali and Asher and and Gad, would all four have an equal share in the nation of Israel. Even though they were the result of a whole bunch of just backroom sort of backstabbing scheming. And then there comes the great scene there starting in verse 14. Rachel finds that the scheming doesn't work. Because she has two kids, and then Leah responds by having two more children, and she's keeping pace with her. And so Rachel sees her opportunity in superstition and magic. Do you all know what a mandrake is? What is a mandrake? Somebody describe a mandrake, if you know. It's a plant. Have you ever heard of a mandrake? It's in Harry, it is in Harry Potter, yeah, that's right, which is actually a good point because um, in Harry Potter it is a magical thing, right? A mandrake is, is, is considered a magical plant, and actually that is true. Uh, but way back in, in ancient history, we read about mandrakes being used in all kinds of magical potions, and I think that's probably what's in view here. Uh, mandrakes are a root plant that you can eat, you can drink tea from it, you can do various things uh, from a mandrake. Uh, Like I said, people have often eaten them for food, but they've also used them in superstitious practices. And so when uh, Leah's oldest son, Reuben, went out during the wheat harvest and found a bunch of mandrakes and brought them to his mother Leah, Rachel saw her opportunity. Because in the Babylonian culture of this time, the number one potion or number one thing that mandrakes were seen as helpful to were childbearing and they were used also as an aphrodisiac. They were used for childbearing purposes. Rachel sees it and thinks, aha, I've got it. I will go get the mandrakes from my sister and finally Jacob will help me get a child. Finally it will work. Finally the, the magic of this superstitious plant will come through for me where God didn't come through for me. And what happens? I love this. What does God do to Rachel in this scheme? Turns it absolutely backwards, right? <laughs> she, she goes to Leah says, Leah, give me some mandrakes. Verse 15, Leah says, are you going to take away my husband and my mandrakes too? Never. And Rachel says, okay, I'll trade you husband for mandrakes. That does imply a lot about the family, doesn't it? It implies a whole lot about the family arrangement. It kind of gets to the point that Leah is still not being treated fairly. She's still not being loved in the same way that Rachel is. And yet the exchange happens, and the very opposite of what Rachel intends occurs. She now loses her husband and Leah has another child. In fact, Leah has three more children. Two sons and a daughter. What lessons do you think you can learn from this weirdness? Because it is kind of weird. Do our schemes help God get his will done? He gets his will done even in the midst of our schemes. But do our schemes help? No. No. Do our scheme, does God purposefully make our schemes fail sometimes to humble us? Absolutely. But even when He doesn't make our schemes fail, He is still at work through those schemes to try to humble us. Make no mistake about it. Because notice, the scheme between the first scheme, you know, that whole uh, I'll give you my servant and then Leah, I'll give you my servant, God still used that scheme to bless the family and to bring more children into the family. He still used it. But then the scheme of the mandrakes, he purposefully foils Rachel's intentions. And in both strategies, what God's trying to do is bring these women to the end of themselves and bring Jacob to the end of himself to show them that ultimately the, the, the affairs of our lives are not in our own hands. You know, One of the Proverbs says that many are the plans in the heart of a man or woman, but the Lord directs his steps. That's the idea here, right? That they think that they're, being, they're taking their fate into their own hands by giving servants away, by trading mandrakes for knights. And God is like sitting above, still just getting his work done. Sometimes blessing in spite of, sometimes foiling and frustrating the plans of man. But in all situations, what is he trying to do? Bring us to understand it's about grace and not our own efforts and works and certainly not our sinful schemes. Which, by the way, I I believe the Bible would say both of these schemes are not only weird, but they're sinful. It was sinful to give the servants to Jacob as wives. Now Jacob's got four total, which is a clear violation of Genesis 1 and 2. Wouldn't you agree? And using plants superstitiously in magic tricks is also clearly forbidden in the Bible, right? Amazing how in every circumstance, what we see in this family history is God is at work. He's at work to humble the proud, and he's at work to exalt those who are already abased. Uh, there's, a, uh, <laughs> there's a famous poem. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's, it's a poem called Invictus, which is um, what the movie Invictus. Have you ever seen the movie Invictus about the South African rugby team? Um, forgot who's in that movie but it was a good one you should go watch it it's really inspiring but it's named after this poem called Invictus and the very last two lines I've always stuck with me very famous poem it says I am the master of my fate I am the captain of my soul last two lines of that poem I am the master of my fate the captain of my soul do we ever think that I mean, at least one person thought that because they wrote that poem. But I, I, I would say that all of us, if we really cut ourselves open, at various times in our lives have felt that way, that our lives ultimately rest in our hands. And listen, this story is an amazing reminder. God is always at work to, to wrestle that out of your hands, <laughs> to wrestle that idea from your hands, to take the wheel away and say, no, you're not in control. I am. My purpose for you is way better than the purpose you set out for. Remember, Leah, all she wanted was a husband that loved her. Rachel, all she wanted was children. Good desires, by the way, both of them. But those desires were too small. God wanted greater things for them both. That's what we don't understand a lot, you know. That's what we don't understand. We think the things we want are are it, right? It's, if we get that, we'll be happy. And yet, God says, it's not that your desires are too strong. That's not the reason I'm frustrating you. I'm frustrating you because your desires are too weak, because they're fixed on created things as if those created things, if you got them, would actually satisfy your eternal soul. They won't. And so, I've got a bigger plan. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting a husband's affection or a wife's affection or children. Those are great desires, God given desires. But hear me out, they are not enough they will not satisfy you forever. Only the blessing of God will. Only only a personal fellowship with the God of grace will and his forgiveness and his work in your life will. And that is what God is working to give these two women. And maybe if God gives it to these two women, maybe even Jacob, hard-headed Jacob, will finally get it. And we'll see he does. Eventually. It takes him longer than the women. But he finally gets it, in part because he gets to watch. Yeah, it's true. It takes him a lot longer than them. But he partly gets it because he sees what God does through Rachel and Leah. We'll get there in a few weeks' time. Let's look at the last thing, God and Rachel. Because this, this is where the passage gets really kind of special here at the end. Because I... Because a lot of times, you know, when we hear about the Leas of the world, we think, yes, I knew it. God loves the downcast. I love that. But when we go to hear about the Rachels, we're like, hmm, does God really need to love the proud, arrogant, self-assured people? I'd rather God not show them kindness. And yet, isn't it amazing that he does? We have to be careful not to be self-righteous against the self-righteous, in other words, because that's a possibility, right? It's the easiest form of self-righteousness to have, to be self-righteous against the self-righteous, and to say, oh, God, bring them down, and bring them down with poetic justice so that we all can watch with popcorn. And yet, God's got a plan there, too, and surprise, surprise, it's a plan of grace, it says, verse 22, God remembered Rachel. Now, why, why do you think it says it that way? God remembered Rachel rather than just God saw Rachel like it had said about Leah. Why remembered? Did God forget? Hmm. Maybe, maybe she was praying yep that's good what else I like that why remembered rather than just see or hear could have been that she was praying seeking the Lord for the first time maybe what else crickets, hmm? crickets. just crickets well think about okay how much time has expired between thirty-one, verse 31 of chapter 29 and verse 22 of chapter 30, do you think? What would be your guess? I mean, how, how many children were born in that space of time? Eleven sons and one daughter. Somebody give me a quick estimate. Yeah, I mean, at least that long. I mean, it's got to be at least that long. It could have been even longer, but at least that long. Maybe that's why the word remember is used. With Leah, it's like because she was already downcast, because she was already in a position of humility, it's like God came to her immediately and assured her and blessed her because she was already where he, he needed her to be to bless her. But Rachel started way up here. And it took 12 years plus for God to work her down to here to where he could bless her. (laughs) And that's what God does for us when we are, and I say we, meaning we all can do this, when we are self righteous, when we are self reliant, when we feel like we've got, we're the master of our fate and the captain of our souls. This is the way God works with us. God remembers us. After a long process of humbling He brings us to the end of ourselves And a lot of times it takes a long time Usually the higher we are, the longer it takes For Rachel, 12 years 11, I mean think about it 11 sons born into the family And not one was hers Truly hers How does that feel? Whew and then at the end of it, she lost both her husband and a chance for a child when she traded mandrakes for her husband. Yeah. But, you know, you get the, you get the point, right? I mean, she, she's, she's lost even what she thought she had. She lost in a chance to get what she didn't have, even for a short time. I mean, she has been thoroughly humbled. And so God remembered. Uh, that word is very common, actually, in the Bible to speak about God, even though it's my, it's what we might call an anthropomorphism. Do all understand that? <laughs> an anthropomorphism is a way of describing God as if He were a human being. Because a lot of times we we can only understand God if He's described in the terms of human beings, and so. Things like God remembered or God changed his mind or God, you know, stretched out his arm and things like that. Those things aren't literally true about God, right? Because God doesn't forget, so he can't remember. God, you know, doesn't have an arm to stretch out because he's a spirit, right? And nevertheless, the Bible routinely speaks this way so that we can understand God and what motivates him and who he is. And the word remember is one of these common ones. And almost always it has to do with this very thing. After a long time of humbling, God remembers his people and comes and rescues them. This happens over and over again with Israel. For example, in the judges, when they get judged and carried away, it says God remembered them and went and rescued them. He sent Samson and and, Deborah and all the rest. Uh, In the exile, they were in exile for 70 years, and it says God remembered them. That he loved them and came. So the remembrance of God is actually a sign of what it means is God showing a long prepared mercy to somebody that has been prepared through years and years of humbling. And Rachel gets to be the recipient of that. God listened to her which does show Ed that she was praying which might have been a change in her life. And finally God opened up her womb. After eleven sons and one daughter, none of which were hers, finally there's the twelfth, and it's hers. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And so she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. In Romans chapter 11, Paul says, Notice the kindness and the severity of God. The kindness of God and his severity are meant to lead you to the same place, repentance. In Leah's case, we see kindness. Almost from the beginning, because she's already in a place of humility. In Rachel's case, we see God's severity, treating her severely over a long period of time, so that she would be humbled to the place where she was ready to receive God's mercy. And I believe if we pay attention to it, we can see those same patterns in our life. I love, for example, the play on words that the name Joseph is, right? Uh, Did you notice how it says, um, She named him Joseph because God took away my reproach. And yet the name Joseph means God has added. I will name him God as added because God has taken away. And I think there's a beautiful picture there, right? God took away Rachel's reproach to give her a blessing after a long period of humbling. And for every single one of us who's a Christian, that's exactly what God has done. God works in our lives to bring us to the end of ourselves so that he could take away the reproach of our sin by putting it onto Jesus. And add to us the blessing of Jesus because Jesus earned it for us but all that has to come after humbling because God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble some people get humble quicker than others and so they get to know the kindness of God right off the bat some people are hard to humble and it takes a lot of severity from God to get us to a place of of lowness where we're ready to receive his mercy and grace. And so, you know, in a passage like this that just seems like the family records at the beginning of the Bible, kind of a yawner, uh, hopefully you see that it's not a yawner, that actually in it God is showing, he's leaving breadcrumbs of all the ways that he's working in these two women's lives, which will eventually capture the wife of Jacob, our man, the man that God has picked to be the father of a nation. All right?